this morning, I wanted to just to speak um, about the Roman centurion whom Jesus said had more faith than he'd ever seen in the whole of Israel. Uh, such an astonishing statement. Now, you can find this if you want to turn in your Bibles. It's Luke 7. Luke 7. We were singing this morning about authority, and there's something very profound that's revealed here in this little episode when Jesus commends this man for his faith. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Luke 7, and you know this story very well. It says about Jesus that when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to the centurion was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, I don't think, and we know by the gospel, of course, that Jesus uh, doesn't pick and choose between the deserving and the undeserving. That's what got him crucified by the religious because he thought everybody was deserving of the love of God, you know. But I think what astonished Jesus here was to find the Jews, the Jewish elders who hated the Romans, coming to him to speak up for a Roman. I bet that would have absolutely intrigued Jesus. So Jesus went with them, it says in verse 6. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed them, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now, Jesus doesn't lie. Can we all agree about that? Do you think he was just exaggerating a little bit? Or was he actually telling the truth when he said, I have not found greater faith in this in the whole of Israel. So I think if we believe that Jesus was telling the truth, we need to pay attention to what was it about this, this centurion, you know, that actually caused Jesus to marvel. And verse 9 says that Jesus marveled at him. And that word means to be in wonder. It's used in other places in the gospel too. It says that Jesus marveled at the unbelief in his own hometown. That caused him to wonder, you know. So if the people in his own hometown who thought they knew him best were in unbelief. Imagine how much he marveled at this Roman centurion, this despised Roman. I mean, the Romans, you know, the Romans this, the Romans that. If you want anything to blame, blame it on the Romans. That's everybody in those days, you know, sometimes people say that over here about, about the English, you know. Forgive us, Nicola, forgive us. You know, everybody's, oh, blame it on the English, blame it on the English. Well, in the Jews, it was always blame it on the Romans, blame it on the Romans, you know. And then Jesus says, no, I'll tell you what, this man has greater faith than anybody else I've ever met in this country so far. This is incredible, you know. Uh, I, I, what a thing to have God marvel at your faith. I mean, what a compliment. Is this not the greatest compliment in the whole Bible was ever paid to anybody? That God in flesh would marvel at you? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? You know, the angels marvel at you and I. I want to speak this morning about marveling at God in flesh. You know, Stephen stood up this morning, Michelle spoke up. We all believe what we sang, 
We all believe that God has made us his temple, that we have the Holy Spirit, that God has come in flesh, and that God has now done something with human flesh, that he's lifted us up, and that he's made this one life with us, you know. We believe it, but we don't believe it. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, the renewing of the mind is a journey, isn't it? It's wonderful that we sing these things every Sunday because faith comes by hearing. So tell me again, Lord, how could this be that God came in flesh? How could it be that me, flesh, is full of your spirit? How could it be that I open my mouth and speak in tongues and the very spirit of God speaks through me? How can these things be? Never let me lose my marveling at it. I want to marvel at it. I want to marvel at it again. Praise God. What a wonderful thing to have done to make the Son of God marvel in the right way. So I want us to think this morning about why Jesus marveled at this centurion. And I want to give you two things that I think the centurion saw that nobody else saw. Two things about him, really, that caused Jesus to marvel. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. It says that, first of all, even though he was a Roman citizen and a centurion, no less, in Caesar's army, he didn't see himself as worthy to have Jesus in his house. That's absolutely incredible. He didn't see himself as... I mean, the Roman, if you were a Roman citizen in those days, you know, you remember Paul, one day he was about to be whipped, and he had had enough of it for a change. He said, listen, can you tell the guy who's about to whip me that I'm a Roman citizen? Well, the whole place went berserk. You're a what? You're a Roman? Oh, my goodness, we nearly whipped a Roman Roman citizen. See, Romans were held in such high esteem compared to the Jews, you know. And here you have a Roman citizen, a centurion in Caesar's guard, who thinks that he is not worthy enough to have a Jew come into his house. How astonishing is that? This attitude. You see, what he had, he had an awe for Jesus. This man had amazing awe, a reverent awe for Jesus. Now, remember a few weeks ago, I spoke about how the early church in Acts 2, it says that they were in awe, they lived in great awe, and the apostles did many signs and wonders. And I said that that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do with us. He's bringing us to a place where we're in absolute awe of the fact of what has happened in Christ, what has happened to us in Christ, what has happened to the world in Christ, that we see it, that we see it, and we're in absolute awe of it, you know. And when you see it, things change, you know. There, there comes times in your life where maybe you're going to church, you're reading your Bible. Maybe, Angela, you mentioned being this morning just before the Word of God where the Holy Spirit will enable you to see something that was always there. Do you know that because Christ has come and died and rose, everything has been done. Christ has sat down. It's all done, but we don't see it. And the Holy Spirit comes to open our eyes to see the enormity of what has been done for us, what has been given, what it meant for Jesus to, to live and die and rise again. And I was during the week I was watching a, a video of a, a theologian who was speaking about the moment theology gripped his heart. He was, he was in, a, in, a, in a meeting and a man was speaking and he said something which this uh, theologian had known himself in his head for years, that Jesus ascended into heaven. Yeah, who doesn't know that? But suddenly it struck him. My God, when he did that, he didn't leave his humanity behind. He brought his humanity with him. There is humanity in the Godhead. Oh my goodness. Suddenly, after all those years, it suddenly struck him. What Jesus did has changed what it is to be a human. He's lifted us up to the highest place. Now, because of Christ, we can be who he always wanted us to be. Sons in the Son, sharing the fellowship of the Son to the Father and the Father to the Son. This is what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, that they would know 
that they are loved in the same way that you love me, you love them, that they would know that they would be one as we are one, that they would share this life that we have. And Jesus now has lifted himself up and his humanity is now in the Godhead. He's made a place for us there. That's incredible, you know. You know, knowing that got Stephen stoned to death. He sat there with the face of an angel and said, I can see heaven open and a son of man standing at the right hand of God. And at that, they covered their ears and their eyes and they rushed at him and killed him. For he had dared to say that a human and God can be together. And even today, we dare not to say that. And yet this is the truth. God came in flesh. And even the angels were astounded. You know, all the way around Jesus' incarnation, nobody could quite believe it. Nobody in their logical mind could put into words what had just happened. The angels were singing, look, look, the whole world, look, whole world, this is good tidings of great joy for all people. God has put himself in flesh. Look what he has spoken about flesh. Look how he's lifted flesh up. Look what he's done to flesh. But nobody could understand it. Nobody could speak it. The only people who could touch on it at that time were people who prophesied. The old man Simeon in the temple. The old prophetess Anna. Even Mary could not understand these things. She just cherished them in her heart. You can't understand these things apart from the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus uh, sees that, because Paul wrote to the Corinthians, no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So to say Jesus is Lord, it means you believe that God came in flesh in Jesus Christ, you know. It's just the most amazing thing. I remember quoting a scripture once. It was the night we had the fundraiser in the center, and you were playing that night, Eileen. Do you remember this three or four years ago? I remember quoting C.S. Lewis where he said, Jesus was the most human person who ever lived. And I remember reading that and thinking, no, no, that can't be right. Jesus was the most human person. Surely... To err is human. Surely Jesus wasn't really human like we're human because we make mistakes. Jesus never made it. But no, he was the most human person. You know why? Because God's idea of human was never to be alone. God does not know an individual life. He only knows the life of a person. And persons are formed by relationship. Each person here has been formed. You are the person you are because of relationship. Our children are who they are because of the relationship with us and vice versa. We're formed by relationship. No man is an island. So Jesus was the most human person because he was the person who lived, the first human to live in relationship with God. Perfect relationship. He lived as one perfectly loved. Even from the age of 12, he said, I don't you know, I should be about my father's business, you know. So that's why he was the most perfect human, the most human human, because God never intended us to be alone. He never intended you to approach this table as an I. He never intended you to say, I, I, I don't have this and I don't have that. For don't you belong to him? And if you belong to him, all things are yours. So that's the way he sees us. That's the way he made us to be. So Jesus is astonished, really, at what this centurion says because he knows that the Holy Spirit is at work in this man. If no man can recognize Jesus, if no man can be in awe of God in flesh except by the Holy Spirit, then can you see that the Holy Spirit was already at work in this centurion? Do you remember when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, oh, I say that you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My Father in heaven told you that. And blessed are you, you know. Praise God. And here, when Jesus hears what the centurion has said, he says, my God, 
The Holy Spirit's at work in that man. Wow. You see, God doesn't credit you with faith. Faith is not something you can drum up by yourself from your own bootstraps. Or else you could kick the glory for faith. Faith is the gift of God. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I live now. I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's a gift, you see. So when Jesus heard this expression of faith, he went, oh, Holy Spirit. Wow. Holy Spirit at work in a Roman, in a soldier, in a centurion. Wow. Jesus marveled. (laughs) You know, he marveled. Because we can't even take credit for faith. You're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not a works, so you won't boast in your faith. It's the gift of God. It comes by hearing. Praise God. So that's the first thing. Jesus really was astonished. But I want to show you something else this morning. The second thing that the centurion uh, has, that Jesus sees he has, that nobody else seems to have at that time. And the text talks about it. It seems to infer there that because he's a soldier, he spotted something in Jesus that a non-soldier wouldn't spot. That's what the text says, isn't it? The soldier says, oh, listen, I'm a soldier. I have men under me. I give an order and they jump. So I know you can do this. What is it about being a soldier that caused this man to understand something about Jesus? And I started to think about this, you know. Do you know that old soldiers recognize other old soldiers? How do they do that? Let's say two old guys, maybe you know an old soldier yourself, perhaps in their 70s or 80s. How do you know they're an old soldier? Tell me something about them. Ah, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, it's 2200, yeah, yeah, that's right, they do. I'm thinking more about their bearing. Yeah, you can tell the way they stand and hold themselves. You can tell the way they stand and hold themselves. It's even something more than that, actually. It's an attitude, isn't it? There's an attitude about them. I looked it up, actually, on the internet. I said, well, can somebody give me a definition uh, about the bearing? What is it to have a military bearing? This is what it said. Among veterans... The concept of military bearing entails that each soldier conducts themselves professionally and is always optimistic. The phenomenon is quite essential as it enables soldiers to maintain high discipline. The military is quite renowned for discipline. So what did this centurion see in Jesus? He saw that he was conducting himself to a very high standard, that he was always optimistic and always disciplined. He said, that's a man under orders. I can see that you're under orders. He could see in Jesus that Jesus wasn't living for himself. He could see that this man is living for a higher order, you know. He could see that Jesus wasn't afraid, that he was crowned with confidence, that he was optimistic. Uh, Did you ever see in the playground when somebody said, uh, I'm going to do something to you, and you say, yeah, you and whose army? (laughs) But you see, when you're in Christ, you can say, you want to see whose army? Have a look. You see, you never stand alone. You never stand alone. That's why when you're by yourself in the house and you're thinking, God, I haven't got this or I haven't got that, I'm all alone. You're never alone. You're not just never alone because Christ and the Holy Spirit with you, because you're in a body. You're in the most... In fact, you work for the... I think that evangelist J. John loves to say this, and people ask him in an airport or a plane, who do you work for? I work for the largest organization in the world. Really? Oh, yes, we have outlets in every country in the world. Really? Yeah, we're into education. We're into healthcare. We're into humanitarian aid. We're into teaching. Wow. What's the name of your company? Church of Jesus Christ. 
it's the biggest army in the world. It's the biggest company in the world, you know. I know sometimes you can feel very much alone when you're at work and nobody at your work seems to share your views. You are part of the largest body of people in the world. It's astonishing, you know. Even in this city, believers constitute the most powerful lobby. If we could all just agree. <laughs> but we are. That's who we are in the Spirit. You see, and to be in the Spirit is not to be living for yourself, but to be under orders. And this is the most beautiful thing. So this is what the soldier saw. He saw this in Jesus. And Jesus, of course, lived that way. He was living to give his life away. He already had decided to give his life away. You know when you sign up to the army, uh, you're, you, you sign up to give your life away. Let me give you an example. Does anybody ever see the, the film Band of Brothers? Do you ever see that one? It's a story about a group of soldiers who go right the way through the Second World War from Normandy right to Berlin a very famous series on the television, you know. And there's one episode, really, where there's a soldier, and he's terrified. There's a battle going on all around him, and he's hiding in a foxhole, terrified. He can't bring himself even to look over the top. He can't even bring himself to use his weapon. He's literally shaking, you know. And suddenly, this soldier, other soldier, an officer who everybody knows and is afraid of, he's famous, this guy, is almost infamous. He just seems to walk around like bullets don't touch him, you know. And he stands there while all these bullets are flying around. He looks down the hole and he says, what are you doing down there? <laughs> and the guy says, I'm just terrified. And he said, do you want to know the cigarette and not being terrified? The guy goes, yeah, what is it? <laughs> it's very simple. You just have to come to terms with the fact that you're already dead. If you'll accept the fact that you're already dead, you're not going home, you can just relax and get on with it. And off he went. He was already dead. <laughs> and he just ran through bullets and ran through stuff, you know. And in one sense, there's a great truth to that, you know. We have been given this life in Christ. You can make up your mind, you're already dead. Is that what Paul said? For I died, you know. You're not going to hurt me. You're not going to steal from me. I've got nothing to prove to you. You can take nothing from me because I've already given everything I have away. Because I can do that. Why can I do that? Because I already have everything. Everything has been given to me. Do you know the way Jesus knew that he could give everything away because he knew that everything had been given to him? John 13 says, just before he washed the disciples' feet, which was such an act of, of almost humbling himself that Peter refused it. I mean, Peter had a little bit of a revelation there, didn't he? Isn't he the one who said, but you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? You're God in flesh. Now, he didn't fully understand it. He wouldn't do it until he got the Holy Spirit. But he did have an inkling, this is God in flesh. How can God in flesh wash my dirty feet? This cannot be right. But Jesus was able to do it because John 13 says this, knowing that he'd come from the Father, and knowing that he was going to the Father, and knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus got up, put a towel around his waist, and washed dirty feet. See, it wasn't going to take anything from him to wash dirty feet because he knew he had it all. Church, all that he has has been given to you. As the father said to the elder brother, don't you know? It's okay. Everything I have is yours and you're always with me. Now, if that's true, you belong to him and everything he has is yours, you can give away everything you have because you don't lose anything. You don't lose anything by sitting on a donkey if you know you're a king. When Jesus stood before Pilate beaten up, Pilate said, what's the matter with you? Why don't you plead for your life? Don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? No, you don't. Not over somebody who's already given their life away, you don't. So this world has no power over you when you give your life away. And that's what this soldier understood about Jesus. You're given authority to the extent that you're under authority. 
So Jesus carried this wonderful authority because all authority had been given to him because he'd given his life away. You see, the safest place to give authority to is into the life of somebody who's not living for themselves. I'll say that again. The safest place to have authority is in the life of somebody who's not living for themselves. And so they're not going to abuse that authority to, to, for themselves. They're going to give it away, you know. And that's why we have been given authority, that we, like Jesus, would give it away. We'd just give it away. We would build people up. We would encourage people. We would speak life over them. We'd tell them who they are in Christ. We'd speak the wonderful prophecies of God over their lives and the promises of God. What are we doing? We're edifying people. We're building them up. We're giving them the authority to live this beautiful life. And so Jesus was astonished at this man. He absolutely couldn't believe it. And uh, this is what this man saw. He saw that Jesus was a man who was having a military bearing. He was a man who was under orders. He was a man who had given away his life. And so the soldier recognized this. And when Paul heard that the Corinthians were beginning to compare and judge each other, he wrote to them and he used a word. And I want to use this word to you this morning and plant it in your life like a seed. It's a beautiful word. We've already sang it this morning, you know. It's the word belong. I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to be in awe that we belong to God. Because you can't really have this authority in your life unless you're in awe, unless you actually believe that has been given to you. How can you use what you have not received? You know? And so the Holy Spirit wants to open our eyes more and more to say, oh my goodness, the things I'm believing are absolutely extraordinary. And I could just take an hour to sit every day and go, how on earth do I even believe this stuff? <laughs> Only by the Spirit. Be amazed. Be amazed at what God has done in Christ. And if you've lost your amazement, open up your Bible or go and sit before the Lord and say, Lord, restore to me my amazement. I want to be like a child again. I want to be absolutely amazed. I want to live amazed. Because when you live amazed, your life shines and people are just attracted to that because everybody is designed to live amazed. That's why we love Christmas. <laughs> we love putting up lights for the children, putting presents on the tree. Why? For that one moment when they look and their faces are absolutely, ah. And something in us goes, yeah, that's life. That's what I want. I want to look like that. I want to look amazed because we were designed to be amazed. I've got some good news for you. In heaven, for all eternity, we're going to stand with our mouths open. Absolutely amazed. And the wonderful thing is, we have everything we need this morning to live amazed. You know, just tell me this beautiful gospel again. Tell me it again. Let me finish with this scripture. Um, maybe you can read it. It's actually found in 1 Corinthians 3.21. And it's worth turning to and underlining in your Bible because it's what Paul said to a group of Christians who didn't get it, who lost their amazement. And then now they were sort of scrabbling around looking for this and looking for that. And maybe one thinking one's better than another, you know, and one thinking, well, I, I, fo I follow this guy. And somebody says, no, no, I, I follow this guy. So Paul wrote to them and he said these beautiful words. This is 1 Corinthians 3.21. So then, no one is to be boasting in people. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Turn to your neighbor and say, 
all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So if I had to sum up, if I had to sum up what the centurion saw about Jesus, he said this, he saw this, he saw that this man belongs to God and he knows it. This man belongs to God and he knows it. What a wonderful thing for people to be able to say about us. Angela Walkup belongs to God and she knows it. Carolyn Grocott belongs to God and she knows it. Ali Patterson belongs to God and she knows it. Don't you, Ali? She knows it. Nicola Doherty belongs to God and she knows it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Anna Moore belongs to God and she knows it. Wow. You need to walk down the street 10 feet tall. You and whose army? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Come on, we belong to him. So when we approach this communion table, we never approach as an individual. The Bible says when you approach this table, you're to discern the body of Christ. So we're going to break bread right now, you know. And when you're discerning the body of Christ, that means that you're discerning that the individual I was killed. He went to the cross. He was put to death on the cross. Do you realize a cross is an eye with a stroke through it? <laughs> That's what Jesus did with your eye. Eye with a stroke through it. So when you approach this table, there's two ways you can approach. You can approach in the flesh or you can approach in the spirit. You can approach under the old covenant or you can approach under the new. To approach in the spirit is not to approach as an eye. It's to approach as the body of Christ. Discern the body of Christ. That's why Paul wrote the Corinthians and said, I can't believe it that you guys aren't even waiting for each other. That when you get together, it's like a whole big, you know, one person's drunk, one person hasn't started. You know, you're not living as one. You're living individually. That's not discerning the body of Christ, you know. We're actually one life, you know. So we're growing in this one life together. So when we come together, we come to this table, we come as the body of Christ, and we come just to eat and drink this wonderful truth this morning. And as we're, re we're receiving this, as we receive the word this morning, we're saying to our own souls, come on, O oh my soul, come on, O oh my soul. And as the soul is quickened by the power of the word of God, God's word says, my word is life to all your flesh. And so this morning, as we're partaking, if we are one body, the body says, and the word says, that one part of the body is blessed, the whole body is blessed. When one part of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. So we know that part of our body is suffering this morning. We're thinking of brothers and sisters who aren't here this morning. Maybe Thomas in the hospital struggling. But we also declare that he's blessed this morning. And that all those in Christ are super blessed because we're eating and drinking and partaking of this beautiful life. And so we dare to do what we sang this morning. We open our mouth and we declare against this wall to come down. Every lie, every wall of sickness, every wall of opposition, everything that does not bend the knee to Jesus Christ, every sickness, we declare the truth that we are already living in the eternal day. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are a supernatural organism. We have this treasure in jars of clay that will become obvious where the power is from. And yet Christ has given us his authority to the degree that we actually live under the authority of the Word of God. Believe that you are who He says you are. I am who He says I am. I do not approach this table this morning as a sinner separated from God by my sin. I approach as a saint of the Most High God, the very temple of the Holy Spirit. My sins have been dealt with. Every need has been met. I come to this table to rejoice and to give thanks. This is a table of giving thanks. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your broken body. 
which solved all our problems. We thank you for your shed blood, which removed all condemnation and fear, that we could lift our head before you, that we can live in light as children, free and confident. You have crowned us with confidence by your blood, and you have given us your health and strength by your body. And we live to honor you, Lord. And we want to live lives where people would marvel at us because they would see that we belong to God and we actually believe it. And so, Father, we just thank you for the great work your Holy Spirit is doing across the body of Christ right now to open the eyes of the body to who they are, that every one of us will be able to say we are who he declares us to be in Jesus' name. Praise God. Let's eat and drink together this morning. We're eating and drinking health to our bodies, wholeness to our souls, joy to our spirits. Thank you, Lord.